the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I am Lina Mohammed. It's Monday, March 29th. أنا اسمي مازن الحمادة من سوريا دير الزور اعتقلت بتاريخ طبعا أنا اعتقلت أكثر من مرة ب 24/4/2011 I decided to set about trying to find out what had happened to a Syrian dissident called Mazen Al Hamada بين فرع الأمن العسكري بدير الزور وحولونا لفرع الأمن العسكري بدمشق This is Lislai. She's the Beirut bureau chief for the Post. He was imprisoned very early in the revolution there for taking part in protests and he was an activist and he had been terribly tortured during his experience there. He was released, he left the country, he made the journey to Europe the way so many Syrian refugees did. He took the boat to Greece, he traveled through France, Italy and wound up in the Netherlands. There he had got political asylum and seemed to be starting a new life. He had made a point of publicizing his torture. He became a very visible and well-known activist on the activist circuit, talking about his experiences under torture. He traveled all over America. He traveled all over Europe. أخذونا على المخابرات الجوية بمطار المزة. طبعاً إحنا ما نعرف لحد ما وصلنا. حطونا بمبنى. اسمه الدراسات هي عبارة عن زنزانتين كل واحدة طولها خمس متار بخمس متار ظلنا بيشي تقريبا اثنين وعشرين يوم He gave the vivid details of these terrible tortures he'd been subjected to in the hope that this publicity would win support for the goal of the opposition in Syria which was to get rid of the Assad regime and then Almost exactly a year ago, unexpectedly, he went back to Syria. After he landed at Damascus airport, nobody who knows him has heard anything of him since. So I tried to trace what had happened to him, why he went back, what circumstances he went back under, and whether there was any news of what had happened to him after he went back. It has been 10 years since Syria's uprising, when peaceful protests across Syrian cities and towns gave way to an armed conflict. And a decade after that beginning of this so-called Arab Spring, Liz went looking for Mazen al-Hamada. She thought that finding out what happened to him might provide some answers for how to make sense of the tragedy in Syria. And a warning... This story contains graphic descriptions of the torture that Mazen endured in a Damascus prison. This all began really with the uprising in Syria in 2011. If you remember, looking back at that time, it was a tremendous time of hope for the Arab world. The whole region, the whole Middle East has been tormented by wars. It had so many crises, one crises after another for years and years and years. And the whole region pretty much has been ruled for decades by autocrats who have terrible human rights records and are also known to be extremely corrupt, which keeps prosperity and opportunity from reaching ordinary citizens. And this frustration burst open in 2011 with protests all across the Arab world. And at what point did those protests get to Syria? 
The anniversary of the Syrian uprising is usually put on March 15, which was the day when huge protests erupted in the southern province of Dara. That was as a result of a group of teenagers who had daubed anti-Assad slogans on the wall being arrested and tortured by the security forces in the town. And this brought the people out onto the streets in a mass, mass protest. But actually, from early February, just a few days really after the toppling of Mubarak in Egypt, demonstrations had been held. What were the Syrian people protesting and what were their demands? Well, initially, the demands were not for the fall of Assad. Initially, the slogans and the demands were against the corruption in the country. There was an immense amount of corruption. And the the country's always been very poor compared to most countries in the region, not all of them, but many of them. But it was after the government began to crack down against people and to shoot at protesters that they began calling for the toppling of Assad, who at that point had been in charge of Syria for a little over a decade. But his father had been in charge for three decades before that. So the country at that point had been living under Assad family rule for four decades. I should point out the the Assad family rule is, I mean, Hafez al-Assad was brutal. Yes, and it wasn't the first time that unrest had erupted in Syria against the government. In the early 1980s, there was a big uprising, in that case led by the Muslim Brotherhood, against Hafez al-Assad. And he had famously put it down with a lot of repression, and an iron fist. And it was always believed that the Syrian people wouldn't dare go out onto the streets again because of the ferocity of that crackdown. But the events of the Arab Spring, the momentum that was gained across the region for change, overcame that sense of fear and timidity among the Syrian people. And they did pour out onto the streets in huge numbers. Mm. Mazen al-Hamada was one of the activists who, who poured out on the streets there following those protests. Tell me his story. So he was among the earliest of the protesters. He lived in the eastern province of Deir Azor, which, like most other provinces, but not all of them in Syria, did join those early demonstrations. And he was joining in the demonstrations. He was also speaking to international media. I gather he was talking to Al Jazeera quite a lot, the TV station, using a fake name. And he was arrested at least once in those early stages in his home province of Deir Azor. Towards the end of 2012, he relocated to Damascus because he had learned his name was on a wanted list and that he was at risk of being arrested again. And he thought that if he went to Damascus, he might be able to avoid arrest. And there he was linking up with activists in Damascus. And according to the stories he's told, he was trying to smuggle some baby formula into a town that was under siege by government forces. And he was picked up at a restaurant one day with another couple of friends and relatives of his. And he was taken to the Air Force Intelligence Building, which is known as one of the security branches of the Syrian government that's renowned for inflicting particularly brutal torture. And what happened to him then? So he was in prison there for about a year and he was subjected to really the most brutal forms of torture. The one he would describe was involved his genitals being placed in a clamp and they would tighten the clamp and ask him to talk. Uh. 
هاند And he was raped with a metal pole, and that was the worst, almost the worst of of what happened to him. And he would tell this to audiences in America and Europe. بالمؤخرة تبعك ويضرب عليك يعني شي ما يتصوره عقل البشري ما يتصوره ناس ماتت كثير تحت التعذيب And how do you feel about the people who did that to you? One thing that was very noticeable when I watched all the clips of him while he was talking about what happened to him and his experiences he would always start crying and tears would roll down his face as he talked about this experience he'd had. How common is Mazin's experience as a prisoner in Assad's prisons? It's common. It happens to all of them. I've spoken to numerous torture victims. And what they describe is also not one session of torture in which they, you know, try to extract confessions or whatever from you. Even after you confess, even after you fold and and, and agree to say anything they want you to say, they continue to torture you. They, Mazen had had cigarettes put out on his flesh, his wrists and arms had been broken, his... He had some sort of unspecified sort of injuries to his bones where he couldn't stand very well and he was in constant pain throughout his life. How was he able to escape or leave Assad's prison? Well, yes, it's interesting as well because this is quite a common phenomenon and many of the torture victims that we do speak to have this story and because they did survive and they did get out. Um, they are eventually taken before a judge who listens to the the charges against them and they tell the judge they were tortured. And if the judge sees evidence that this confession was probably extracted under torture, they do let them go in several cases. And this was what happened to Mazen. He told the judge he'd been tortured. He showed the evidence of the torture. He wasn't in good physical shape and the judge let him go. And then after that, he decided to escape the country and, and, and go to Turkey. What do we know about what Mazen's life was like after he fled Syria and was settled in the Netherlands? Once he arrived in the Netherlands, he took it upon himself to broadcast his experiences, to publicize his experience. 
in the hope of educating the world about the brutalities of the Assad regime. And he traveled to America. He spoke to congressmen. He spoke to generals in Tampa, Florida. He went to universities and high schools and spoke to them about his experiences in the Assad regime. This may seem obvious, but can you spell out exactly why it's just so bizarre that Mazen would decide to just go back to Syria after all of these years? This is what none of his friends or relatives can understand, is why he would think that he would be safe if he went back. He was obviously well known. His face was well known. He appeared in many documentaries talking about the brutality of the government. And people are just puzzled as to how it was that he didn't think that if he went back, that the same might not happen to him again. Hmm. So... How did you go about trying to figure out what happened to him? Yani, where did you start your investigation? I started out talking to his friends and trying to reconstruct his movements in the weeks before he went back. And I managed to reach out to a couple of relatives of his, a nephew and a brother-in-law, who he had spent some of his final weeks with. And I talked to them about what they knew about his plans to return, whether they were aware that he was planning to go back. And what his state of mind was. And those family members, they're also in Europe, right? Yes. These are family members who lived in, one of them lived in Germany and one of them lived in the Netherlands. Mersen had also had some very unfortunate experiences in, in Holland while he was living there. Like what? What happened? Like all refugees who arrive in Europe, they get assistance from the government. He was getting a stipend from the Dutch government. He lived in a small apartment there on his own. But at some point, he had worked for the company Schlumberger, an oil company in Syria before he left Syria, before the uprising. And they owed him some back wages. And he managed to arrange to have them sent to him in his bank account in Holland. Now, it is against the rules for refugees who receive a stipend from the Dutch government to receive outside forms of income. So his bank account was cut off. And his income was cut off and he became unable to pay his rent. He effectively became homeless. He couldn't pay his bills. He had his water cut off, his internet cut off. And he had to leave the apartment. That's when he went to stay with his relatives. And that had played a big role in turning him very much against the West. He had begun to feel unwelcome in the West. He'd begun to feel that he had as many problems in the West as he had in Syria. He missed his life in Syria. And he was clearly incredibly traumatized and dealing with an immense amount of trauma that he seemed to have received very little help for. And what did Mazen's friends and family say about his state of mind leading up to his decision to return to Syria? Well, what was so disturbing about reporting this story was listening to his relatives talk about the immense trauma he was clearly under. He would not stop talking about his torture. It was six years since he had escaped from prison. He was angry all the time. He was frustrated with what he saw as the world's failure to do anything to stop this suffering. He felt guilty And he was just steeped in his experiences. He was he was overwhelmed by them. He couldn't let go. He couldn't move on. Do we know anything about like the extent of, if any, of Mazen's communication with the Syrian government? So one of the interesting aspects of this is that he clearly had some sort of help from the Syrian government to go back because he would have had to get a Syrian passport. We know from one of his friends that he visited the Syrian embassy several times. And in some of his last conversations, he seemed to exude a lot of confidence that if he went back, he would be safe. 
And he said that, oh, I've served my sentence. I've taken my punishment. They don't have anything against me now. So when he decided to leave, was it a surprise to people? Or like, did he have one of his friends sort of like drop him off at the airport or like, yeah, I am going to Damascus? Even though he'd been telling people he wanted to go back and that he missed Syria and and that he would prefer life in Syria to the West, he told people things like the West are liars and cheaters. They, they say they're sorry for you, but they don't do anything to help you. Although he would say that none of, none of his friends or relatives actually believed he would go back because they thought it would be madness for him to do so and that he would realize that. But it seems in the last couple of weeks before he did get on that plane to go back to Damascus, he did go out of his way to hide his movements from friends and relatives, perhaps because he was sure they would try to stop him. And the only reason it was possible to confirm that he did go to the airport and he did get on that plane was because a Syrian who happened to be dropping a friend off at the airport for the same flight saw him and recognized him from all of his many activist appearances and was quite stunned that this guy who was well known as an opponent of the Assad regime was on a plane that was ultimately a route to Damascus. Then he went home and called another well-known Syrian activist who knows everybody in the activist circuit and, and told her what he'd seen, that he'd seen Mazen at the airport, perhaps getting on a plane to Syria. And that woman, her name's Maysoon. Hello. Marhaba Mazen. Hello. So tell me about this phone call recording that you heard. Where did you get it and what does it show? It was because the Syrian who'd seen Mazen at the airport called the activist Maysoon and she called him and she reached him at Beirut airport and she recorded the telephone conversation. It's quite chilling because she's trying to tell him not to go back, that he will be in danger if he goes back. And he's arguing with her. He's telling her, no, it'll be fine, I'll be safe, I have to do something, I have to help my people. He did seem to believe that if he went back to Syria, he would be able to play a role to get other political prisoners out of prison, that he would be able to somehow play the role of a mediator or peacekeeper between the regime and the people who are against them and the different factions who are fighting. He seemed to be under some illusions that he could have a, perhaps have a grand role to play there. She argued with him. She said, don't go. Mazin, remember that I talked to you at 7.30 a.m. 
بتوقيت بتوقيت المانيا وقلت لك لا تنزل تذكر يا مازن قلت لك ما تنزل اشهد ان لا اله الا الله وان محمد رسول الله اشهد ان لا اله الا الله And then he just insisted that he was going to go and hung up the phone. كنت مسجون عند نظام ومحسوب على الثورة ما تنزل تسلم حالك هذا اللي بيهمني أنا. مازن ما تنزل يا مازن. مازن ما تنزل. استفل استفل انت حر يا مازن انت حر السلام I've listened to this recording and it's incredibly haunting. I mean, you can hear sort of the airport PSAs in the background, Misun just begging him not to go, and yet he was just so adamant on going. Yes, that's right. And what I found most haunting about this was the final conversation he had through these activists who were calling each other and, 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 and telling each other that um, Mazen appeared to be on his way back to Damascus. His nephew, who is about the same age as him, and they were very good friends, his nephew called him and reached him right after he had landed at Damascus Airport. And Mazen now seemed to have a very different attitude about his return. He was afraid. He said he'd been told by the immigration that he was on a wanted list and would be detained if he entered the country. He talked about trying to get out on another flight that might be leaving but it wasn't clear how he would be able to do that because he apparently didn't have money. And his nephew, Ziad, said he could hear Mazen's teeth clattering in fear as he spoke. Hmm. And also, chillingly, he could hear a voice of somebody who appeared to be with Mazen and telling him what to say and, and guiding him. It just appears that... Mazen only realized after he had landed at Damascus Airport that he was not going to be safe, that there was a risk he was going back to prison and back to the torture he had managed to flee nearly six years before. Do we know what happened to Mazen after? We don't know what happened to him, and I think the assumption that everybody has is that he was taken into custody again, and he's back in the black hole of this prison system. He does have many relatives in Syria. I know through contacts we have made it's dangerous for them to speak to us, but they haven't heard from him. Nobody has heard from him since. One of the tragedies of Syria is that there are tens, hundreds of thousands of people also in a similar situation. Over 100,000 people have been detained into Syria's prison system during this past decade, and the vast majority of those have not been heard from since. There are people whose husbands, fathers, brothers, sisters, many of them are women, have been taken into custody up to a decade ago, and they just have no word on what has happened to them. And all of them do live in hope, but it's a, t- a terribly agonizing kind of hope because we also know that many, many die in custody and many, many do not survive the torture they are subjected to. And many are also s- sentenced to summary executions that 
sometimes carried out on a mass scale, and there's been documentary evidence of those from satellites and testimony of of large numbers of people being executed in the prison. So between the torture and the execution, the life expectancy of somebody who goes into a Syrian prison is not very high. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. What do you think Mazin's story and his disappearance and the disappearance of, of so many Syrians, what does it say about the state of, of Syria today? Well, I think it's very telling that this uprising was put down and Assad has prevailed, but it was but this was done at the most tremendous human costs and only with the exertion of the most immense amount of brutal force. The cities and towns that were outside the government's control were bombarded into submission and people were killed in airstrikes and artillery and and explosions. And then in the areas that are under government control, people are just living under this iron fist. They're living in fear. If you put a step a foot wrong, you will end up in one of these prisons. And it sort of also goes to explain a lot about why there was this frustration that did erupt in such a, in, in such fury at that time. And it also explains why he was able to win, why he was able to prevail. What I find interesting about Mazin's story is it, it, it makes me think about the West and, and this question of whether the West is somehow complicit by not seeking proper justice for Assad's victims. Although it's been very slow, there actually has been some movement on the issue of justice and accountability in the past few months. Activists and lawyers who've been investigating human rights abuses have found clauses in countries' laws that could be applied internationally to international war crimes, and they've been applying them in their courts to a number of different cases. So, Liz, you've covered the Arab Spring from the start, and you're still covering the region right now. How much has changed in the region since the first spark of the so-called Arab Spring? How much has changed? Yes, it's it's a very difficult question to answer. Everything has changed and then nothing has changed, and in, in the worst possible ways on both counts. I mean, Syria is destroyed. It's nothing like the country it was before. It's Other countries have been ravaged and destroyed too. Yemen, Libya, um, you look at Egypt, it's under an even tougher, um, harsher form of dictatorship than was ever the case with the government of Hosni Mubarak, who got overthrown. There hasn't been political reform. There aren't greater political freedoms. There's actually more tyranny than there was when people rose up in 2011 because using tyranny was the only way the rulers of the region were able to stamp out this spark. And 
Corruption continues, economic growth remains elusive, opportunities for ordinary people remain elusive, and all you hear about whenever you go anywhere in the region and anyone you talk to is people just want to leave. They just, people are looking to get out as, as, as best they can. Yeah, my, my family left, um, so we're Palestinian Jordanians, and we left Jordan in 2012, shortly after the, the basically the revolutions erupted across the region. And I remember asking my dad, like I was obviously, you know, I was a teenager and I was attached to my school and my friends and my country. And um, I remember my dad said, we're leaving so that we have a choice. Right. Um his words still ring true today. And I think um, about them sort of like all the time of like how so many people who are still, you know, living in the region, you know, whether in Yemen, Jordan, Tunis, Algeria, like they don't have any other choice. And another part of the tragedy is just, you know, things are becoming more and more and more unbearable for people in many countries with economic deterioration on top of political repression. But doors are closed. The opportunities for immigration and migration that were there 10 years ago, five years ago even, don't exist anymore. Europe has closed its doors. America closed its doors. We might see them reopen a bit now with the Biden administration. But the upheaval in the region also blunted the escape hatch for so many people by having the outside world turn their backs on everybody and, 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 and raise the bars of immigration and, and, and blocking off the routes to illegal migration. And people are more trapped than they ever were before. Hmm. In hindsight, as a reporter, was there any good outcomes of this like so-called spring on the countries where it did happen? It's very hard when you try to look for good outcomes from the Arab Spring, just because so many ordinary people's lives have been so horribly ruined, so horribly turned backwards. The new generation of young Arabs that's coming of age today, the opportunities for political expression, they're less than they were a decade ago. The opportunities for economic improvement are less than they were a decade ago. And the opportunities for emigration um, to leave the country, the doors have clanged shut on them. His, his story haunts me. It stays with me day after day. I keep thinking about the torment he was in, in general, and then the moment, what he must have gone through the moment he got back to Damascus and realized that he was going to be going back to those prisons that caused him all this torment in the first place. It's, it's one of the most powerful stories I've ever reported, and I cannot shake what I've listened to and what I've heard through reporting it. I feel like just this one story tells us so much about the Assad regime and the lengths they're willing to go to just to preserve the status quo. Yes, the cruelty they're willing to use to preserve the status quo and to let nobody go, forgive nobody. 
Some people talk about reconciling with the Assad regime. Other people have reconciled with it, other individuals, and they've disappeared too. We do know of many cases in, in, in that instance. People talk about whether it's safe to go back to Syria. What his story also shows is that there is no reconciliation. They will forgive nobody, and Syria still isn't safe. Liz Sly is the Beirut bureau chief for The Post. This story was edited by Rina Flores and produced by me. Ted Muldoon and Alan Cypress also contributed editing. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Ted Muldoon mixed the show. You can learn more about today's story at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Lina Mohammed. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.